0: welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our author events at www.skylightbooks.com. At our website, you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. And don't be afraid to follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. Thanks for listening and enjoy. DS schools that they should not um, that they they, sh- they should be in opposition to US law that they the US government is corrupt and evil and um, they they have this you know this very crazy kind of what I consider crazy kind of twisted belief system and yet they're able to flourish they're able to prosper they're able to exist openly um, They live in either neighborhoods that are sort of like Colorado City that are open neighborhoods that you or I could walk into but nonetheless are dominated by the FLDS or they live in compounds like the Yearning for Zion Ranch that was raided in 2006. Um, And there's a number of those. Or they live sort of clandestinely in Salt Lake City or St. George where they're supposed to try to hide that they're a polygamous family which is what we see on a show like Big Love which is a wonderful show and really funny and I enjoy working on it but... It's a particular take on polygamy, which is sort of like the darkly comic take on polygamy. And people go, oh, I love that show, it's so great. But the real thing that happens, that the real sort of issues that are raised in those communities, especially for young women, are not funny at all. At all. Um, and so when I began to do more research on it, I was just stunned at, at the sort of the level of um, criminality to be... I don't know the words... Name it by, I mean, they, they commit, you know, welfare fraud of a staggering, staggering, um, a staggering level, you know, when a man is married, he has one legal wife on the books, then all the other wives are just called spiritual wives, celestial marriages, and those women go on the welfare rolls and the food stamp rolls as a single woman with ten children. And if you saw that happening in a Latino community or a black community or a community of color, there would be how many politicians down there with news cameras to say, look at this terrible abuse. Yet these things just thrive. They, they thrive. They commit child labor violations, labor law violations when they have... Um, uh, construction com- bids. They'll bid on a construction job and they underbid all the other competitors and then the day the work begins they show up with 12 and 13 year old boys doing the work, boys who should be in school. And they're not. They've been pulled out to work. Um, when they did the Yearning for Zion Ranch raid in '06, the child welfare workers who were taking care of the kids when they were in productive custody said that when you went into that community you would not know that children lived there because you did not see one toy you did not see one crayon. You did not see one coloring book. All those children did was work from the first thing in the morning until they went to bed. And when they were in custody and they wanted to go outside to play, they would ask permission to go and pull up weeds. Because that was the only way they'd get to go outside was to work. And so you see, you know, if you see, if this were happening, you know, openly, which it actually does happen openly, but if, you know, we, if people were paying more attention to this, you know, if they were more sort of outraged about this, they would not be able to to flourish, not just to survive, but to flourish the way they do. They're incredibly wealthy and well-connected politically and um, every time there's a raid on one of their communities within a month or two you see um, some kind of press coverage in a major magazine, People Magazine, National Geographic, with these backlit photos of little girls in those prairie dresses and people sort of think, oh, They're like the Amish or something, you know. They they have this nice, you know, too conservative for me and my kids, but they tap into a very deep vein in the American psyche, which is that we want to believe that there is this utopia that exists where kids don't do drugs, and they don't have sex, and they listen to their parents, and they do their chores, and even if we don't think it's right for us, we like to think that this exists somewhere. And the FLDS are very, very good at manipulating that vein in the American psyche. And as, and of course, you know, you have the, the state authorities in Utah have historically turned a blind eye to, you know, everything that goes on there. And it's very difficult though, you have, even when they did the Yearning for Zion ranch raid, um, the ACLU stepped in to defend the rights of those parents as if this was a parental rights issue. And they defended those parents in court who wanted their kids back, even though there was widespread evidence of underage teenage pregnancy. Um, and the, and the, a lot of the first responders are not trained, really, to deal with cult mentality. And um, you have social workers who don't necessarily know, they don't have specific training to deal with children who have grown up in a cult. And how, do you, how much time does it take for those kids to begin to talk about what really happens? So, all of those things, my sort of outrage about all of that is what really fueled this book. Um, which is called Keep Sweet, and anybody who knows about fundamentalists knows, will know from the title that it's about them because Keep Sweet is the credo and the mantra that they drum into girls' heads from the time they're little. And Keep Sweet basically means do not ever speak up, do not get angry, do not disagree, obey, keep silent, don't talk about what happens here. Um, And any time a girl shows any signs of autonomy or anything, they, you know, the older siblings and the mothers, and they're right on her, you know, keep sweet, keep sweet. And again, the child welfare workers in Texas said that when younger children began to talk about what was really happening in that community, their older siblings would say to them, keep sweet, keep sweet. So it's a very kind of, um, haunting thing. You know, my mother actually came up with a title one day, she was cooking at my house, and she was like, we had to change the title of the book, and she went, keep sweet, you know. But, um, so this is a story of a girl, a 14-year-old girl, who is, um, fully indoctrinated in this world and thinks that it's great and it's fine because that's all she knows. And then her family is very prominent and she's the favorite daughter of the favorite wife in a very large polygamous family. And everything starts to go wrong. Her father starts to lose his position of favor with the prophet, with the all-powerful prophet. Her, um, Her idea that she's going to be able to marry the boy she's grown up with, who's 18, is completely off base, because that's not going to happen at all. She's going to be um, married to the brother of the prophet, who's 55, as a sixth wife, where she really has no position. Um, And then the book really becomes about her desire and her plan to escape. Um, So it becomes a little bit of a thriller in her attempt to, to get out? Is she going to be able to get out? How is she going to get out? But the more important journey for me as a writer really is the the emotional and psychological journey from being fully indoctrinated in this cult to realizing that this is crazy. This is crazy. How do, how do, how do we live this way? How do we believe this? So, I'm going to read two little passages um, from the book. Uh, And one of the things, the other phenomenon that happens a lot, really tragic in in these communities, is this thing called lost boys. And you may have heard of, um, these are often young men, teenage, 15, 16, 18 year old boys, who are deemed a threat to the sexual exploits of older men, are kicked out of these communities. They're just, you know, some literally kicked out, taken to the highway, and left. And these are boys who have grown up in this completely controlled world where they have had no power to make any decisions of any kind, and they end up, um, many, many of them falling into crime, prostitution, any number of, of desperate ways of surviving, because they don't know how to survive in the world. They've never been out in the world. And there's several really, there's one called Banished, The Lost Boys of Polygamy, which is a really hard-hitting documentary that really hits on this. And a lot of it is very clear. These, these older men say, we've got to get rid of these boys, because we want these young girls. We want these girls for our wives. I want to marry this 14-year-old. I want to marry this 15-year-old girl. And if there's a handsome 18-year-old boy, well, we've got to get rid of him, because he is threat. And it's very, very common. And they have these sort of trumped up charges that they, you know, say, now you're being kicked out. So um, the main character in this book, her name is Alva Jane. She's um, about to turn 15. And her brother Cliff, her older brother Cliff, gets expelled for um, he's been you know, talking back to their father. He's been asking, questioning things, wanting to know why they have to live the way they do, why they can only read FLDS books, why they can't read fiction books, why they can't. Um, and, he, um, and he gets expelled and it's sort of an extreme punishment. Nobody expects him to be expelled, they expect that he's going to be sent to this reform camp. Um, and this is sort of the first major happening where they start to realize that things have changed for their family, that they're no longer in this position of um, protection under the power of the prophet. So, um, let me find my little page. I folded it and of course now it's gone. Dun, 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 dun. <clears throat> so she's just she's gotten up in the morning and she's found out that her brother's been expelled. She's hoping to hear, like, oh, he's gonna be sent away or he's gonna be disciplined. And An hour later, uh, I sat behind my mother, who was at the wheel of the old Chevy Impala that my daddy had given to his primary wives. My younger siblings and I were piled into the back seat, a jumble of arms and legs, our dusty shoes scuffing up against one another's shins. In the passenger seat, Cliff sat stiffly, a small duffel bag on his lap, his eyes glued to the road. No one spoke. It had all happened so quickly, we were in a state of shock. I had been forbidden to talk to Cliff since Mama had told me of the Prophet's decree. I had been unable to help him pack his clothes to decide what keepsakes to take, to give him the shiny piece of rose quartz he had helped me dig up years before out by the Red Rock Ridge. He had been left alone in his room to prepare for his new life. Mama maneuvered the car through the streets of Pine Ridge until we reached the main guard gate and the towers where we pulled onto the highway. Daddy had instructed her to leave Cliff several miles from town so as not to elicit any inquiries from strangers passing by. Boys who had been expelled were called lost boys. Some had gained attention from local press and others who took pity on them. Leaving Cliff too close to Pine Ridge might alert some passerby and Daddy didn't want anyone asking questions about a boy, alone, out on the highway so close to the compound. The car rumbled, dragging our heavy load of human sorrow down the empty highway, the desert spreading out endlessly all around us. A few miles from town, Mama pulled over and kept the engine running. You take care, son. Remember what you've learned. Stay on the straight and narrow path." Mama pressed a small wad of bills into his hand, adding, "'I've been saving this for a rainy day and I think this qualifies.' When Cliff spoke, his voice was thick. "'I'll be okay, Mama. Don't worry about me.' He turned to face us and I saw panic in his eyes underneath his mask of bravado. "'You all be good and mind Mama. Do as she says and don't give her any trouble, you hear me?' Olive broke into sobs and reached for him. "'Where are you going to live, Cliff? What are you going to do? Where are you going to go?' I'll find my way, don't you girls worry. He reached out and mussed up Leon's curly hair. And you two boys be big boys now, don't be crying like your sisters. I could see the Cliff was about to cry himself, and I leaned forward to embrace him. When I put my arms around his slender shoulders, my own tears broke free, his faded, wetting his faded denim shirt that I had mended countless times. I wanted to say something, but no words came. I wanted to scream that this was wrong, this could not be happening to us. But I knew that it was pointless, there was no turning back from this moment. Cliff pushed the door open and stepped out, the morning sun lighting up his handsome face. He had inherited Mama's fine features and her father's height and physical grace. I wondered for a moment if it might be true what some of the rowdy boys whispered, that the prophet always managed to expel the handsomest boys, the ones who caught the attention of the young girls and became rivals to the older men in the community. Could that be why Uncle Kenton had taken such a hard stance against Cliff? Why a trip to the Short Creek Reform Retreat was not enough to satisfy him? We watched Cliff walk down the highway, his pack slung over his shoulder. He looked so small and defenseless against the landscape. Lucas and Leon ignored his words and cried inconsolably. Mama turned the car around for the trip home and I could see that her cheeks were wet with silent tears. All of us pressed our faces against the back window, waving, trying to keep Cliff in our sights as long as we could until he was just a little speck on the highway. On the way back, I vowed to do everything I could to keep sweet and follow my mother's example. Surely, if I worked extra hard and demonstrated my obedience, then the nagging questions inside me would disappear and everything would return to normal. As we neared Pine Ridge, Mama pulled over and turned to us, her tears now dry. I don't want any of you to mention this to anyone or to talk of it at home, you understand? You're not to mention Cliff. Your brother is dead to you and to this family now. Once someone is expelled from the brotherhood, he does not exist in the eyes of God, he has become an apostate. You must all be strong, do not let the other sister wives see your crying or show them any sign of weakness. You are God's chosen children and your father's favorites, and that is all that matters. We stared back at her in obedient silence, not one of us dared to speak a word. I felt the sinking certainty that nothing would return to normal ever again. Mama shifted the car into gear and guided it down the remaining highway, turning past the guard gates and towers, leading us back to the safety and security of home." And this thing when her brother is expelled is really, as I said, the first happening that shakes her world and makes her say, oh my god, this, this bad things can happen to us. And then of course it quickly goes very, very, very bad um, when she hopes to be married to her sweetheart, who's not, you can't actually have a sweetheart in this community because you can't be alone with a boy. You know, you can never be alone with a boy. So they, they steal away for a moment to talk about the fact that he's been accepted to college and as soon as her menstrual cycle starts they can get married, he hopes, because they usually wait until a girl's menstrual cycle starts because they're supposed to have a baby within the first year of marriage. And they're supposed to have a baby every year that they're married actually. So um, he's hoping that they're gonna be able to get married soon and um, they meet to talk about it and she's, of course, caught with him. And this is based on a real story. I read the story of a girl named Ruby Jessup who was 15 and was caught you know, giving a quick little kiss to a boy and was right away married off to a man who could be her father and she tried to escape and she was she was brought back and nobody's ever really seen her. She's never been allowed out again. There have been some photographs of her. Um, she has a sister who escaped um, named Flora Jessup and Ruby Jessup's story is a story that really inspired me to write this book because I was thinking how does this happen to a, a girl here? Um, so Alva, of course, tries to escape doesn't escape successfully, um, she, I set this town in near Moab, mostly because I knew Moab, and I'd been there before, so I wanted to write about it because I knew it. Um, and she tries to escape, but she's, she's caught, she's actually not caught, she hides successfully from her father's first wife, who she's gone to town with, to do an errand with, and then she, um, she goes to the police late at night to, to tell them that she's escaped from a forced marriage, and they call her parents, and they come and pick her up and take her back because she's a minor and that's what you do in Utah. Um, so she goes back and she's married. In the middle of the night she's about to be, she's married off, she's going to be married off to this man. So she has um, been brought back uh, by her parents and they have uh, taken her in the sort of dead of night. They've. Um, taken her and and hidden her in this this thing that's called a hideaway that a lot of these homes have, um, these things called hideaways, they're like, they, they do have them to, a lot of FLDS homes have them there to hide from authorities in case there's a raid, and it's where you hide multiple wives and multiple children and you, looks like a little, you know, cabinet or something, but it's actually a big enough space to put people in, and you get in there, and they close it, and you close it from the inside, and you stay in there until the FBI, or whoever it is, are gone. Um, so they've taken Alva back, and they've put her in one of these hideaways, and She's, she knows it's there because she's seen it her whole life and she's in it and then once she's in it, it locks from the outside and she had no idea that it locked from the outside. She thought it could only be locked from the inside. So she's been locked in and she now realizes that she's stuck in there and she doesn't know what's, what's going to happen at this point. Um, I began to panic. There was no way out. I listened to my mother's footsteps disappear. What if they left me inside forever? A disgrace to my family. Better to be forgotten. I did not sleep when the sun came up, and a thin ray of light filtered in through the wall of the hideaway. I saw uh, writing scratched onto the wall of the hideaway. The words read, help me, I am Sherry. Sister Sherry was my father's third wife, who hardly spoke, who was afraid of her own shadow, who lived alone, out in the converted shed. Sister Sherry, who had been pushed out when my mother joined the family, like she had said in the car last night, before daddy silenced her. Had Sister Sherry been locked up here once as well? My father built this house. There were no prior inhabitants. If Sister Sherry or anyone else had been locked up in here against her will, it had been Daddy's doing. What kind of man was my father? He was the son that our family orbited around. He was always ready with a grin and a slap on the back, secure in his role as the prophet's right hand. But now that he was afraid of losing Uncle Kenton's confidence, he was showing a different face altogether. I had seen him the way a small child would, believing in his easy smile and the little trinkets he had handed out to his favorite children, the extra piece of pie, the prettiest fabric for a new dress. Who was he that he could cast a favored wife aside so easily and take her children from her? That he could lock up a daughter in this dark hole? What else was he capable of? What other secrets did this house hold? I thought back to my punishment in the barn, the uncontrollable fury that overtook him, the way his hand dripped with sweat when it came, when it was over, and how my mother held me still to receive the blows from his belt. I thought I knew them, but now I saw that I did not, that I never had. The realization hit me like a blow to the stomach, but unlike the whipping in the barn, this time I did not cry. The time for tears was past. Every face I loved and trusted belonged to a stranger, an enemy. Their love for me was not love at all, but something else. I was just a pawn in my father's quest to secure his position with Uncle Kenton, and in turn, a playing piece in Mama's plan to regain Daddy's favor. The pain of this truth hurt more than anything else. Worse than being beaten with Daddy's belt, worse than the silence, than being shut out of my family. It was as if I had been ripped away from a part of myself. It was betrayal, knowing that everything I had believed in was false. And above all, I knew that my survival was in my own hands, but for now, my life was in theirs. All day I stayed locked up in the hideaway, unable to move. I had no water, no food, even when the midday heat rose. Maybe they hoped that I would die in there and make everything easy for them. It was well after bedtime when I heard Mama's footsteps in the hallway and the door jerked open. My bladder was about ready to burst and I ran to the bathroom to keep from wetting myself. When I came out, Daddy stood with Mama at the top of the stairs and said the words I dreaded to hear. The Prophet wants to see you now." And at that point, she's taken late at night in and married to the Prophet's brother, completely against her will. And they marry her and that's that and she then has to endure um, several months as his wife and every awful thing that happens as his wife. Which is why this book is intended for an older young adult audience, um, since it's not for twelve year olds because there are some very graphic awful things that happen. Um, but she does ultimately escape and it has kind of a cinematic ending because she escapes, um, she escapes and she's hitchhiking by the side of the road outside of town. She's been hiding in the desert for two days and this, she won't, she's hitchhiking and she won't get into a car that has Utah plates because she's afraid of being picked up by Mormons who are sympathetic to the FLDS. And she sees this car with California plates and she jumps out and this young couple who are, you know, all tattooed and pierced and they're from Silver Lake and they're documentary filmmakers, pull over and they put her in the car and they realize right away that there's something not really right about her story. They stop at a 7-Eleven and they see this news flash that this girl is missing and there has actually been a raid on this community. And um, it turns out that her sweetheart, who had been expelled like her brother you know, several months before, had actually been trying to alert authorities to get them there to try and help her. Um, And they say to her when they walk back to the car, they say, you know, we know you're that girl and you better tell us the real story of what's going on. And they're in disagreement. The young man doesn't want to take her across state lines. It's a felony. And he says, no, we're taking her to Salt Lake. We're giving her to the police. And the girl says, we can't just give her back. You know, what could happen to her? And they, she tells them their story. And at the end, they get to that part where they turn off and, um, to make the decision. And the, the man, the young man says, I think we should just drive straight through to California at you?" And it's the moral imperative. It's against the law. That it is the moral imperative because there's too great a chance that this girl would be returned. And, um, and she says yes, and they drive off. And you just know that she ends up here in Silver Lake. And, you know, my vocation was, you know, she was like, it has to have a happy ending. I'm like, it has a happy ending. And she said, no, but everything has to be tied up and she has to get back with the boyfriend. I said, no, she doesn't. This is a happy ending. We don't need a tied up little bow, like a little box, you know. This is a happy ending, and then they, um, and so now, of course, and now it's been option for series development with ABC Family to pick up where the book leaves off, which is a really interesting exploration, I think, uh, and since they want to do more edgy stuff at that network now, um, the notion of taking a, a young girl who's grown up in a really tightly controlled cult and dropped, you know, where they teach virulent racism, where women have no rights and you suddenly drop her into, you know, so leg. Like, so I'm I'm sort of excited to see how that plays out because I, I I didn't want to do a sequel because I felt like doing a sequel hurt it sort of as a standalone book. But a lot of kids and a lot of readers say to me, "What happens to her?" I have to know what happens to her. So I'm like, "Well, if this goes through, then you'll see what happens to her. You know, we'll all see what happens to her." So, um, so that's that, and that's the book. And if any of you have any questions, please ask. I'm always happy to answer. So, yeah. Uh, I'm a substitute teacher for Los Angeles Unified. Yeah. This would be wonderful book to teach the issue, you know, in in, in high school libraries. If you need to talk to your literary I agent mean, about it. Yeah, it's I, placed in high school. Yeah, grade. I would love to have it. Yeah, grade. high school. Yeah, I think I would love to do that. I would love. I do a lot of The book came out in March and most of the school visits had been booked already for the between from March to June. So I'm setting up the stuff for September on because I really like to go into schools and talk to kids about you talk to, you know, kids in LA and you say, "Okay, imagine your life with no cell phone. You have no computer. You don't have a television. You have no idea what's going on in the world. You have no control over your life." You know, it's and it's just like a living hell for teenagers here, you know, they think. And then you say, there are girls and people who live this way. And it's just a few hours driving from here, you know, and there's nobody speaking up for them. Because unfortunately, the people who are really adversely affected in these communities are young children and young women. And young women and children don't vote, you know. They, they don't have a political lobby in Washington. They don't have anybody banging on a senator's door saying, what about us? It's inconvenient. It's inconvenient. And... Even though the Mormon Church you know, disavows them and says we excommunicate anybody who practices polygamy, if you look at historically what has happened in the sort of state of Utah and the, the complete lack of action that they take against these communities. I mean they put how many millions and millions of dollars to support Prop 8, which is marriage between consenting adults. And if they had taken half that money and said, well why don't we root out this evil of, of young girls, being coerced into sexually abusive marriages with old men. Why do we do that? Um, and there are a lot of people who are who are part of the sort of people who've escaped from these communities, who are activists on this issue, who say the same thing. You know, who say, why don't they put their attention on this? You know, because here in their own community, in their own faith, you have people who are suffering terrible abuse. So, I definitely am going to do that. I would love to go and talk to kids in school about this and see how they think about it. You know, mm-hmm. so. Or one oh no! Mormon polygamy. Oh no! They don't. I mean, it's interesting because the, it's in the doctrines and covenants of the Mormon Church, which is their most sort of hallowed piece of scripture. And even when they disavowed polygamy, to get into the union, you know, they Utah wasn't going to be allowed in unless they said we're not being polygamous anymore. So Brigham Young was like, "Well, yeah, I guess we got to give it up." Um, the church leaders did not. They they kept multiple wives in private. Um, but they never took that out. They never struck that from their scripture. So there are a lot, there's a lot of speculation that the Mormon church actually really does give them passive approval and says, you know, we're not going to really come after you because this really is one of the foundations of our faith. Um, but, you know, Mormons on the street, are a lot of them are just really horrified. You know, I, I have a lot of Mormon readers who've read the book who's, who say, you know, God, this is like the creepy uncle who shows up at the Christmas party and you have to talk to him. And they're, they're part of our history. But Mormons on the street are not, you know, many of them are really horrified by this, but, you know. So, anybody else? <laughs> Did you encounter anybody who had left the church or stayed yeah. the book? Yeah. That yeah. I, I spoke to a, a woman who had left who was, um, you know, she was like, you cannot mention my name, you cannot use my initials, you cannot. I still have relatives who are in the FLDS. You know, and it's very scary. I mean, they're, they're really like, I think it's the State Attorney General in Utah, in Arizona, just based, openly says they're just like an organized crime syndicate. I mean, they really are, you know, they, they're they very, very intimidating and very scary. So, And then I read a lot of um, first-hand accounts of women and people who had lived in these polygamous communities and escaped, and they were shockingly similar, whether they lived in British Columbia or Mexico or... Canada or Utah, the stories were the same. Exactly the same. And it's, it's just frightening to me. I mean, I'm stunned. I'm still to this day, I haven't done all this research and written this book, I still think, how on earth does this happen? I mean, how could, how is it the police are not just like, not, I have a friend who's in the FBI, who, uh, who said to me one day, oh, well, this is a religious freedom issue. And I was like, you're in the FBI. How do you think this is a religious freedom issue? You know, if my religion tells me to go out and commit a crime under U.S. law, guess what? By religious freedom, you know, so. Fundamentalism, of course, is nothing new. Uh, Being in show business, I guess, uh, for much of your life, uh, what kind of personal exposure have you had to fundamentalist beliefs in terms of your own in terms of your own career, in terms of uh, de- dealing with people in, in, in of show business. Well, I would say that those of us who, I have several friends here who are screenwriters and whatnot, I would say that we don't have too many fundamentalists, except unless we have sort of like fundamentalism about money, maybe. Um, but, you know, yeah, I'm not, uh, I there is the whole Scientology wing and that depends how you view it and how you think of it and, you know, there are people who are great supporters and people who are virulently opposed um, but I, I have not had any personal experience myself with uh, any, what I would consider true fundamentalism in, within our industry just because it tends to be such a liberal um, you know, world and wide open, you know, rather but anybody else? Oh, no, no. I got interested in this like about 10 years ago and when I heard the story of Ruby Jessup, I was like, how? I was just stunned, like, how, does, how did this 15-year-old girl, how did this happen? And then I read Under the Banner of Heaven by John Krakauer, which anybody who hasn't read that book, go read it because it's, it reads like a terrifying thriller and it's nonfiction. It's such a fabulous book and so beautifully researched. Um, and I was just kind of carrying this idea around. Um, then I got this crazy job on Big Love Playing a character who was one of my main a character who I think is based on my main research source, who is a journalist named Andrea Emmett Moore, who's based in Salt Lake. Now she lives in California, but she was a former Mormon and she um uh, she had her career was really made by exposing FLDS communities and writing about them and she you know she's been threatened horribly by them and she's had, you know, everything happen. And When I read for this thing on Big Love, I realized this character is based on her because she's this reporter who's trying to sort of get in there. And it was a really interesting role when I read for it, but then of course, as is common on Big Love, they like change midstream when you do like several episodes where you say like three lines, and they go, oh no, that stuff you read in the audition, that's coming up. And then they never get to it, and then you finally go, what am I doing? What happened to those great five scenes I read? You know, (laughs) what I was going to do with Chloe Speckney, huh? So, um, that whole storyline sort of went on, I don't know what happened to it, it's sort of gone on the back burner, I have no idea when I'm going to go back, but no, I had this, and it's interesting, you know, I enjoy Big Love, it's a fun show to do, and the people are very, very nice, and, you know, terrific writers and everything, but it is, I'm a little, always a little sort of like, wow, how interesting to, to find what's funny, you know, and when you really do research into this topic, you go, hmm, that's, you know, why don't we do a show that's really funny about slavery, you know, Um, do they threaten them? They threaten them. They definitely threaten them. I, um, I think part of what happens, though, I think that they, um, I think they're, they're very savvy, and I think that they realize if they started to, if they started to target people outside the way, like Alan Rudolph was, you know, targeting abortion providers and whatnot, then there would be a tremendous backlash against them. And I think they're, they're smart enough to go, okay, once they're out, you know, There's a lot of different organizations. Um, Andrea, who's my main sort of research source, was telling me one of the difficulties in finding an organization is that some of them are like fronts that look like they're to help people escape polygamy and they're not really. They're actually really pro-polygamy. Some of them are uh, put together by women who have been so badly damaged by this experience and they want to help but they kind of don't know how to really do it, and they can't get their 501K status right, you know what I mean? There's all these things that they can't quite get right, and they don't they don't know how to function in the world. They, they're coming, a lot of them were escaping, Carolyn Jessup escaped when she was probably in her 30s, I think she had like eight children or something, and her account of escape, it's called Escape, um, is is really harrowing. I mean, she had to like leave in the middle of the night. She had to get all of her kids into this van. She the other wives knew they were trying to get out. They were trying to alert the husband and, you know, and they had to get out the gates of this community. It was very, very scary. And if they get caught, you know. And she said she goes she said she had no driver's license because she never had a driver's license. And if she had, her car had broken down or run out of gas within a few miles, they have their own police departments in these places. They have their own fire departments. Their police guys will come and get you and bring you back. So she said she was in like mortal terror. And she had these brothers who had escaped who were waiting for her in like the parking lot of a Chili's or something in the next town. And she just was desperate to get there so that she could escape. Um, But it's, so yeah, they, and they, and they do. I mean, I think they do, they threaten. You know, this journalist has been said she's been threatened. You know, a million times. They call her house. You know, so it's a scary sort of world. But yeah. So, anybody else? Okay, great. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Ashley and Arlo. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, or at the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.